Father, we are so humbled to now stand and sit before you as recipients of your revealed word. We thank you so much that you have chosen to disclose yourself to us in the life, death, and resurrection of your son, Jesus Christ, and then now given us your word, this inspired and perfect, breathed-out letter for us to consider. And so, Lord, I pray that your word would be powerful unto salvation today for those who have yet to come to salvation. I pray that it would be profitable for training, reproof, right, training in all righteousness and unto salvation. Father, we thank you that you are indeed sovereign, that you are in the heavens and you do all that you please, and yet you've desired to communicate with us. So now I ask by the power of your spirit that you'd open the eyes of our hearts, that we would increasingly delight in you, depend on you, and savor Jesus as our Lord. I pray that your spirit would lead and guide me to only say what would make much of Jesus, that everything else in my thoughts and my words would fall to the floor, and we would, be le- we would leave this room stirred in affection for and dependence on him as our only hope in life and death. It's in his name I ask all these things to be done. Amen. What is the greatest transition or change you've ever gone through in your life? What is the greatest transition or change you have ever gone through in your life? For some of us, it's that day you said, I do, at the wedding altar. And you realize, I thought I was selfless until I got married. (laughs) For some of us, it's when we had kids. And you thought you had a busy life, and then things got real crazy. For some of us, it's when we graduated college. It's when we took that first job and the weight of responsibility. Or maybe you recently came out of a medical struggle, a surgery, so to say. What is the greatest change you've gone through? And what was the difference before and after in your life based on that specific experience? See, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 to 10, is all about a before and after, a change, all centered around one specific event, experience, in and through faith in Christ. Ephesians 2, 1 to 10, is all about the greatest transition that happens in the life of every Christian, every single believer, before you are dead in sin. After faith in Christ, you are alive and united with him forever. The greatest transition is what we're going to unpack over the next three weeks as we work through Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 to 10, and we're going to hear it proclaimed from the lips of someone who knew this great transformation personally. The Apostle Paul, the author of this letter, was someone who knew what the difference of before life in Christ and after saving faith in him was all about. Remember his story. Remember what he was like? Big bad Saul? Remember the Apostle Paul before? He lived to persecute the church. He sought to put to death the people now that he now encourages. And then that miraculous encounter with the risen Lord on the road to Damascus, he sees Jesus as Savior, and he can't help but speak of him as Lord to all he encounters. And so the persecutor becomes the preacher, and now by God's providence, he becomes the prisoner. See, when he writes this letter to the church in and around Ephesus, he's under house arrest in Rome. He's been thrown in jail, essentially, for his faith. He writes in the year 62 AD, bound physically, but rejoicing spiritually, as if anything could contain the eternal joy he has. See, verse 3 to 14, that we unpacked uh, over the last month almost, we heard every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places chosen by the Father, redeemed by the Son, assured by the Spirit, and that oozing out of praise in the longest sentence that we can imagine, 200-plus word train wreck turned theological masterpiece, 
then transitions to a prayer. Isn't that kind of surprising? He preaches and praises, and then immediately prays after that. And here's why. He knows that without the Spirit of God opening the eyes of our hearts, we will not let these truths impact our hearts. They may float around our heads. They may float in and around our conversations with one another. But we need the Spirit of the Lord to open our eyes to know the great hope we've been given. The great joy of being God's inheritance. The immeasurable great. The immeasurable greatness by which he raised Christ Jesus from the dead is now at work in those who believe. And so all of this has preceded what we will now hear in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 to 10 over the next three weeks. And you might initially be thinking, three weeks, ten verses? That's the most pedestrian of paces we could ever imagine. And yes, I grant it, we are going slowly through this spiritual hike, this landscape of God's glory and and Paul's letter to the church around Ephesus. And here's why we're walking slowly. So that we would savor deeply these great truths. See, some things don't need to be rushed through. We walk slowly to savor deeply all the things that Christ has for us. And over the next three weeks, we're going to hear about the greatest change he's ever brought about in the life of every Christian, from death to life. And so Ephesians chapter 2 Verse 1 to 3, we walk slowly through it for a sober reminder of what life was like before or apart from union with Christ by faith alone. Spoiler alert, it's going to sound like a lot of bad news. (laughs) It's going to bring a deep sobriety about our need for Christ. And here's why this passage is in Scripture, in my opinion. Because unless we fully grasp and sense the deep nature of our depravity, we will never celebrate the heights of his rich glory to forgive us. Unless we come to a personal realization of our personal depravity and transgression and sin against the Lord, we will never personally celebrate and savor Jesus as our Lord and Savior. He may be a good historical figure. He may be a wise teacher. He may be someone whom the culture is built around, but we need him to be our savior for life with God. And so first we see our need for him. We see our depravity, and we see a a preview of the great change he will bring about. So what exactly was life like before or apart from union with Christ by faith in his work? Well, Paul summarizes it in three words that we're going to look through today. First, we were dead. Second, we were disobedient. And third, it gets a lot better, we were doomed. Dead, disobedient, and doomed. If ever there were people in need of delivery, it's us. It's us. This passage is meant to whet our appetites for the saving work of Christ, to long for that after picture of what life looks like with and and in him. But today, first, we see the before picture. And it begins in verse 1. Let's go back to the text. What was our status before God? You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Perspective matters, doesn't it? Perspective changes everything. This week I've had a couple conversations, I believe providentially, with gentlemen in our church who have previously worked in the coal mining industry. Coal mining industry, a very dirty, a very dangerous, a very difficult line of work 
mining the subterranean depths to take out these valuable resources. And if anyone needed to know, this is like the dirtiest job I could ever imagine, based on what I've been told. Down below those depths, of course, it was day after day of black soot and stain and ash, not just on the shoes and the pants and the clothes, but deep down into your pores, like in your hair follicles, like you exuded and smelled like the the kind of stuff that's underground even once you came out. And can you imagine for a moment two miners working underground, covered in filth, but ever saying to one another, hey, Joey, do do I have a stain on my pants today? Hey, hey, Jimmy, do you think I need a shower to, like, clean myself up a little bit? No, you don't. You're in a coal mine. You look left and right, and the filth that is not acceptable on the outside becomes not that bad underground. Uh, Perspective matters. What if these miners were then taken out of the mine and immediately dropped off at a nice wedding, a five-star dinner? Can you imagine the reception they'd be met with? Unacceptable. Take a shower. I see those stains. Not just one. I see many stains on all of your clothing. You must be changed. You see, verse 1 and 2 reveals to us our tendency to look horizontally instead of vertically in the spiritual assessment of our standing before God. We believe, and sometimes, we sometimes believe that our perspective, our assessments of sin and its wrongdoing, according to our measures, is what trumps God's vertical standard. But what we need is God's vertical righteous standard to assess and define our true spiritual status before him. See, like one underground miner to another, we are so tempted to say, not that bad. I look to the left. I look to the right. I turn on the newspaper. Or turn on the TV and read the newspaper. I hope you don't turn on the newspaper. And you see, I didn't rob the bank. I didn't kill anyone. Not that bad. But Paul says we were dead in sin. First, the th- first three words. You, speaking to the Gentile church, you were dead. He doesn't say you were kind of decent. He doesn't say you were on the right track doing enough good deeds to earn your way to God. You were dead in sin excluded from life with God is what this means. You're like a spiritual corpse, unable to walk with the Lord because you are dead in the sins and the trespasses in which you once walked. Trespasses and sins. What in the world does that mean besides something I've heard in church week in, week out? Well, here's what it means. Trespasses, those willful infractions of God's law. Like when God commands us in his word to to do something or not do something else, and we say, you know what? I'm not going to go by that standard. I'm going to do what I want and the means that I desire. Trespasses. Sins. What are are those? Well, that just means falling short, kind of missing the mark. We've been made to be like God in holiness, but we've fallen short. We have this natural perversion, this inward bent in on ourselves and our glory, so much so that it's impossible for us to choose to glorify God unless he works in us to change us. We are dead in the sins and the trespasses in which we once walked. And these sins and trespasses, they blinded our assessment of our true spiritual status. They made us look horizontally instead of vertically and blinding us to our need for God to not only forgive but change us. So one practical question for you and I is, where in your life right now, whether before you're coming to faith in Christ or even now if you're apart from Christ or even if you are in Christ and you're battling the indwelling presence of sin, Where has sin become not that bad 
because you look to the left and the right instead of vertically to God's standard? Where has sin, such as that little bit of gossip that makes you feel better because you said something that makes you feel a little bit more superior to someone else, where has that become not that bad or normal, kind of comfortable to fall into? Where has anger become something like, you you just don't know how difficult my boss is. That's why I got angry. You don't know how difficult my kids are or my spouse. If you had my difficulties, you'd get angry too. Where has sin in your life become not that bad because you're looking left and right instead of vertically to what God says about us? See, the shocking reality is that God is totally different from us. He is without sin. Isaiah can't say it enough. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. As if a thrice repetition of the most perfect word ever could encapsulate his character. He is perfect in moral majesty. And that is the essence of his character that we see all throughout scripture. And he's made us in his image. He's made us to be holy as he is holy. But we all know that that's not the nature that we walk in. Genesis 1 and 2, our first ancestors, they enjoyed this deep communion, fellowship with God, free of sin. And then Genesis 3, spiritual death begins. Our first ancestors, Adam and Eve, they entertained the worst dinner guest ever. (laughs) That tempter, Satan, the serpent, enters into the garden, serving up a buffet of lies instead of God's truth tempting them to feast upon that forbidden fruit, the fruit that God knew wouldn't be to their good, only harm them. He, he enters in with lies instead of truth, inviting them to eat, and they do. They eat of the fruit. They satiate their wayward heart's desires, and that's when spiritual death began for them and for us. See, they fell short in that moment of God's commands. They missed the mark. They were cast out of God's presence because in his holiness, he can't be around sin. Spiritual death began the moment they doubted his goodness and disobeyed his commands and doubted his greatness as well. And we know this is the nature in which we're born because Romans 5.12 tells us so clearly. Just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all have sinned. This isn't the time in the sermon to nudge your neighbor in the elbow and say, I think he's talking about you. That's not it. Death has come into the world. We are all naturally born in Adam. We are dead spiritually in need of a great delivery from Christ. But but you know this is what you've come to believe or not by the reality. Has an awareness of your depravity actually set in? See, it has an awareness of your depravity and sin made you long for Christ's delivery and his righteous life, death, and resurrection. Because unless you had gotten to the point where you saw your deep need and longed for his delivery, unless you could say with the Apostle Paul in Romans 7, Oh, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from this body of death? See, that's what happens in the heart of every Christian. We come to a realization that we're no better off than anyone that we need the saving work of Christ for our personal sin. Verse 1 whets our appetites, doesn't it, for good news. This little appetizer, so to say, makes us long for a change of menu. 
it makes us long for the good news that, uh, yes, we've heard that we sin, but the good news that we're going to hear over the next two weeks is that God saves. That's how salvation works, isn't it? The equation is we sin, God saves. All we bring to the table is need, a dead spiritual status. And so even amidst an awareness of our deep depravity, we're not meant to just gaze internally. We're meant to look hope with deep hope upwardly, vertically, to the God who saves, in spite of us being dead in sin and disobedient. We were dead. And second, Paul says, we were disobedient. Let's continue now. And back in verse 2, we were dead in our sin and also disobedient. We are following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived, all of us, in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. I love traveling to new places especially. Colorado, California, Oregon, some of my favorites, same a few. Yesterday, we went to this incredibly luxurious place called Paducah. You ever been there? Chart topper. It was wonderful, actually. But I, I, we love traveling. My wife and I, we love to see new places, new cultures, new peoples. Uh, but I have this terrible habit when I travel, especially when I get behind the wheel of a car amidst traveling. I know in a new place... I should follow Google Maps. I should follow the explicit satellite-given precise directions and coordinates that are available via modern technology, but I don't. (laughs) I imagine that the road less traveled, the scenic route, the one that I think I can bypass the red lights and the stop signs and get there a little bit faster, I take that road. In my pride, I follow my desire instead of what I know to be true. Much to the chagrin of my very patient wife, much to the giggles of my toddlers in the, my toddler in the back seat, and we go until we hit a dead end, and then I finally turn around, acknowledge my mistake, and we get there a little patience tried, but ready to explore. I have a bad habit of following the wrong things on vacation. Much worse than that, you and I have bad habits of following the wrong desires following the wrong dictates, the wrong commands. We are, as Paul says here, we're enslaved. We follow things as if we don't even have a choice. And he says we follow three specific things. Before or apart from life in Christ, we follow the world, Satan, and the flesh. As if you could think of a more unholy trinity. We follow the world, Satan, and the flesh. The external, the ethereal, and internal wayward courses. First, the external. We follow the course of this world. Verse 2. Following the course of this world. Those are like the external influences of prevailing secular culture. Living amidst a time where God is not the center of the worldview. And as if you need a reminder from me what this includes, just turn on the news. Open up the newspaper. We hear a lot of courses of the world that will tempt us to live for something other than God. And I don't need to go on and on about that. But as I was praying for our congregation specifically and wondering, God, what are some of the courses of the world that we might be prone to follow or be tempted by instead of the courses you've set for us in Scripture? A few came to mind, not not the only ones, but a few immediately came to mind. One of which is, do we see our families as gifts from God 
to steward for his glory and love for his purposes? Or do we see them as means of righteousness? See, the temptation for us is sometimes to see our families as our ultimate joy. That's why I live. That's why I breathe. That's why I wake up. We see our kids. Are they behaved? I feel good. Are they doing well in school? Well, I get a well done, my faithful servant from the PTA president. See, these things are very real temptations, and and I, I wondrously celebrate the fact that God does place us in families. He does give us opportunities to be educated, to participate in extracurricular activities, but none of these should be God replacements. The courses of the world to be successful in school, to be successful as the parent with the best-behaved kids, what do those lead to? We've been made to love our families and instruct our children in the fear of the Lord, but we've been made to love and glorify God above all things. Another course of the world which I think we should be quick to examine in our lives is what do we use our vocations and our retirement for? Is our vocation a means to acquire our our fame and our wealth? Are our retirements just opportunities to maximize our comfort and lower our golf score? Not exactly. And I'm so thankful to be serving in a church where there are countless examples of men and women who use their vocations to the glory of God. They wake up and go to work longing, God, I know you're going to use me for your kingdom purposes in in my line of work today. Please open those doors. Empower me for that. I know one man who I spoke with this week. He he is a man of means and education, and yet he uses multiple months during the year to travel to other parts of the country and into Mexico to share the gospel at sacrifice to his potential vocational success. I know many of you in this room use your retirement to disciple and build into other people in this church and to seek to spread the gospel, even down at the fishing club, where you see that as your gospel witness. Praise God for that. Let us never be tempted to think the courses of this world, our comforts or accomplishments in this life and time is all there is. The course of God's glory is obedience, joyful obedience to him in all things. Paul says we're we're tempted to follow the course of this world first, and then second, follow Satan. Go down with me to verse 2. Following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived. Sobering. All of us. This is our past. Before coming to know Christ, or even now, if if you are yet to be united with him by faith, this is the prince of the power of the air, the sons of disobedience among whom you live. And Paul is careful in using the word prince. It's a term of tribal leadership. As if Satan is leading an opposing army, the sons of disobedience. Disobeying who? Our sovereign God. <laughs> Working against his plans and his purposes. It, and it reminds us of two things. First, it reminds us, praise God, that he is sovereign even over Satan. Praise God that, sure, the prince of the power of the air is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we used to live. But God is still sovereign over all things, including Satan. And it also reminds us, as 1 Peter 5, verse 8 says, and along with this passage, that Satan is now at work in the sons of disobedience. We should be leery against his temptations and schemes. 1 Peter 5, 8 gives us this sober warning where it says, Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking to devour. 
That's very sobering to us. It inspires thanksgiving that Christ has come to break that power, free us from the penalty of our sin, but it reminds us that we must be compelled to kill sin, to not be complacent in it. We shouldn't treat sin like a tame little house cat when Scripture says it's a roaring lion seeking someone to, to devour. What I am about to say will offend the vast majority of you. So I'm going to ask for um, forgiveness ahead of time. I do not like house cats. <laughs> I do not like house cats. I, if you have a pet cat at home, I still love you. I just probably will sneeze and, and, and kind of turn away when I go to have dinner at your house. And, and here's why I don't like house cats. When I was growing up, we had this cat named Rocket, named after our favorite basketball team, of course. That's what you name it when you're a kid. And Rocket was like the kind of cute cat that you put on cat calendars, like gray, stripes, cuddly, fangled tooth, scar on the ear. You just wanted to hold her and bring her close. But the second you pet her the wrong way, or you look at her across from around the room, you know what you get 30 seconds later? She's sitting on the couch cushion behind you, her paw in your hair, scratching your ear off. What is wrong with you, cat? We feed and house you. See, we are tempted to so often see sin and Satan's schemes like cuddly little house cats. We think the things that he promises, just like in the garden, Adam and Eve, they didn't think that fruit was going to kill them spiritually. They thought it was the desire to bring them what they thought only God could offer them. But they short-circuited God's commands in light of believing Satan's lies instead of God's truth. Satan's schemes work so similarly in our hearts. He puts before us something that God doesn't desire for us to have. And and he tells us, you can find security, you can find comfortability if you just follow my patterns, follow the prince of the power of the air. I'll give you what you want. But those offers, those temptations for security, they just lead to further depravity. Satan and his schemes are not a cuddly house cat that we should keep at arm's length for the times of difficulty or trial. They are a roaring lion that we should be killing instead of coddling. So the question for us, what previous sin pattern did God save you out of and just immediately make a break in your life is the moment you came to faith in Christ? Or, right now, what kind of sin struggle, what kind of temptation from Satan are you tempted to keep at arm's length when you feel disillusioned? When you feel just hopeless, discontent, where do you run apart from God in pursuit of the peace that only God can offer? Is it the click on the website? Is it the, a little bit of anger towards your spouse to vent the rage you feel? Is it getting mad on the road when someone cuts you off? That's not as applicable here as it was where I was from, but I know road rage still happens here. Are you mad when your children disobey? Join the club. <laughs> The reality is, guys, that Satan offers us things that never lead to our good. They lead to death. But Christ has come to break that penalty, to free us from that penalty and break that power so that we, by the power of the Spirit, can be killing sin and increasingly living in the freedom that God offers. See, we were once disobedient, following the world, following Satan, and then finally following the passions of our flesh, the final wayward internal impulse. Verse 3. The passions of our flesh led us to carry out the desires of the body and the mind. The passions of the flesh, those 
wayward impulses, the things that spring up from a love for God's gifts and our desires, even above God. I think the things like Galatians 5, verse 19 to 21, talk about. It's like the opposite of the fruit of the Spirit. Paul lists this, the passions of the flesh kind of list. He says, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, enmity, fits of anger. Anyone fall into that category? Rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy. And then his last three words, things like these. As if the passions of the flesh could be summarized in a comprehensive list. See, he uses a word, passions. He doesn't say hobbies. He doesn't say kind of things that you, like extracurricular activities. He says passions. It's a word meaning lust, like an over-desire. Like you feel like you have to have that. You feel like if I don't have this, I won't be joyful. I won't be content. It's a passion, a thing you can't say no to. It's something that's become a God replacement and that you're willing to sin in order to get. And it's no coincidence that as I was preparing this message this week, the Lord reminded me that I am so thankful for what Christ has done to free me from the penalty of all my past, present, future sin, but also helping me see my need to put to death the passions of the flesh that still wage war with my sin. And here's what it looked like specifically for me. Fridays are usually my day off. And you know how I envisioned Friday to go on Thursday night? I envisioned my wife and I despite being parents of two young children, we might sleep in until like 6.30. Maybe. That would be wondrous. We might not have to change a diaper that's overflowing like everyone on Thursday was. We might, Ezra might finish teething and he might stop taking in all his teeth at once and, and have a little halftime respite to his crying. You know what Friday was like? You can imagine. Lots of diapers, a 5.30 wake-up call, and crying all day. And you know what? It, and you know, none of this was sin. My children did not sin against me in any of this. None of this was breaking of God's holy standards. It was a mere violation of my preferences. But I treated my preferences being broken as if God's law had been transgressed. And you know what was revealed in my sinful heart? Impatience. Anger. Even against the people I love most. It was so difficult to be patient with my sons. I love them. And in that moment, I was so thankful for the saving grace that's available in Christ and so reminded how wondrously steadfast and patient God is with us. Way worse than a crying two-year-old or four-month-old. He saw us at our worst. He left eternal comfort to enter into the deepest pits of our despair, deeper than any mine on earth. He entered into our sin to live perfectly, die sacrificially, and be risen victoriously. Patient, steadfast, abounding in mercy. This is the God who saves us. This is the God who sets us free from the passions of our flesh. And finally, as if the good news could get better, we've heard that we are dead in sin, We were disobedient and following the wrong guides, and naturally we were doomed to destruction. Let's begin to conclude in verse 3. We were doomed for destruction under God's wrath. We were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Apart from Christ, before coming to know Christ, what we deserve is God's wrath. His consistently pure anger against sin and evil. And here's why. 
sin is in total objection to his character. It's the total opposite of who he is. He can't be in the presence of sin. And so therefore, as born in sin, we deserve to be cast off and separated from him forever. And this is a problem that Paul says we all have. We. He doesn't say you, your neighbor, or he doesn't isolate anyone. He says we were all children of wrath. Jew, Gentile, who he's talking to. Parker Cohen, Smith, Brandon, everyone. All of us. This is our nature before God. And yet, it points us forward to not only the reality that we have fallen short of his standards, but we now need forgiveness, a new righteousness. And that's what God has come to offer us. What we're going to unpack over the next two weeks in verse 4 to 10 is the new life, the after picture, the forgiveness of sin, the clothing with new righteousness to remove our sin-stained clothes. And it all comes through Jesus Christ alone. See, in Genesis 3, Adam failed. (laughs) Our first ancestors, they took that fruit. They followed the wrong desires. Wrath entered, deservedly. Jesus begins his ministry tour in Matthew chapter 4 in a way that's eerily similar to the garden. Eerily similar to the garden. It wasn't a pastor's retreat at first for Jesus. He entered into a wilderness temptation. Remember what happened in Matthew chapter 4? I'll remind you in verse 1 and 2. Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. It's like Genesis 3, 2.0. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. No kidding. (laughs) Can you imagine the scene? Can you imagine our Savior for 40 days? No home, no friends, no truth, only temptations, worldly comforts removed, Satan's schemes employed, and fleshly hunger beyond what we could imagine. I wouldn't have made it like two hours. (laughs) This is beyond difficult. And yet Jesus never follows the world. He never follows uh, Satan or the passions of uh, sinful flesh. He succeeded at every point where Adam failed. And and it was not only in the wilderness, it was throughout the rest of his life, a perfect sinless life. And that matters for you and I. Our salvation hinges on his perfect life and his sacrificial death. See, without a perfect sinless life, he could never be the greater Adam. He could never represent us as our new federal head before God, standing in our place where we have failed to live a perfect life. And we need someone to bring us into God's right standing. Only Christ can. And he did that in his life. But the wilderness wasn't the end. That was Matthew chapter 4. There's 24 more chapters of good news. See, the wilderness pointed to the cross. The wilderness was hard, but Calvary was a lot harder. (laughs) After Jesus lived a perfect life, He went to the cross to die a sacrificial death. And what did he do on the cross? He did nothing less than appeasing God's wrath, the wrath that you and I deserve. He shed every ounce of his blood to absorb every ounce of God's wrath that you and I deserve. He descended into the deep pits of our sin to rescue us out of those, to reconcile us to God, the righteous for the unrighteous, in order to bring us to God. On the cross, he experiences the worst wilderness the worst garden temptation you and I would ever imagine. We hear it in Matthew 27, 46. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Those should be our words. That should be what you say when you come to a realization of your utter depravity before a holy God. But now through faith in him, 
His words, our words become his words. He stands in for us to take God's wrath that we deserve and can't bear. This is the wondrous news of the gospel that no other religion in the world offers. Every other religion in the world says, clean yourself up, get it together, here's ten steps, make things better, and then come to God and hope he grades on a curve and accepts you in. Salvation is we sin, but God saves. We contribute nothing except great need, and Christ contributes everything. But unless you see your depravity, you won't long for his delivery. Unless you see your deep depravity, you won't long for his perfect delivery. You, amidst the sea of God's wrath, you won't cling to the life preserver, the eternal life preserver, who is Christ Jesus, the one who parted the seas in Exodus and now parts the waves of God's wrath that you deserve for eternity. This is the greater Adam, the one we've longed for, the one who has come to announce new life. And not only did he live a perfect life, and die a sacrificial death, but he rose a very bodily resurrection. See, the pattern of his ministry was wilderness, cross, tomb, alive. Wilderness, cross, tomb, alive. After three days of being dead in the tomb for our sin, it looked as all hope was lost. It looked as though doom would be the last word for you and I. But God, as we will hear next week, But God raised Jesus from the dead. But God said, death will not reign. But God said, I will bring life out of death. But God said, death will be swallowed up by victory, an eternal victory. You see, those pierced hands, those pierced feet that hung on the cross for your sin and my sin, they walked out alive after three days. That stone was rolled back. The immeasurably great power of God was put on full display when Jesus walked out and broke bread again, inviting us to depend on him, to run to him amidst our depravity. And see, he is our only hope in life and death. Guys, the good news of the gospel is the tomb is empty and the king is alive. The tomb is empty. The king is alive, and he demands a response. The king is alive, not so that we can know about him, not so that we can talk about him in our cultural circles, but so that we can depend on him, so that we can run to him and say, God, I acknowledge I have nothing to bring except great need. You have provided all that I need perfectly in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, him for me on the cross. And so he for me is my only hope in life and death. And the good news that is available to all who trust in him, is that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone. Behold, the new has come. You were dead, disobedient, doomed for destruction. Now in Christ, as we're going to hear the next two weeks, you're alive. You are separated, excluded from life with him. In Christ Jesus, you are united to him. You in Christ, Christ in you, the same Spirit that raised Christ from the dead now lives in you, bringing life to your mortal bodies. My goodness. Death is not the last word. Death is what we hear in verse 1 to 3. But death is not the last word for all who are in Christ. And so the invitation today is, are you in Christ? Are you in Christ? See, I have not been struck and captivated by this passage all week in order for you to just pat each other on the back and run to the Golden Corral and say, oh, I can't wait to see who wins the game tonight. This passage is meant to convict us to the heart. 
The, the weight of God's glory is at stake when we open his word. Have you seen your deep need for him? Have you given him your sin, received his forgiveness? This is the most eternally important question you will ever answer. The king is alive. He wants you to depend on him. And the only way that we can is by running to him in faith, saying, Jesus, I bring nothing. You bring everything. You have tied for me. I trust in you for all things. If you are a Christian, it is a miracle. God, exactly. If you are a Christian, it is a miracle. God has brought dead, disobedient, and doomed people to life through his risen son. We have reason to praise. If you, we have reason to praise. So run to him. Trust in him. And then speak of him. Speak of him. We often hear words like evangelism and go share missional lifestyle as if I can't do that. What if you started by just remembering the great depths of your salvation? What if you remember the depths of your depravity, the heights of his grace, and just told your friends, your family, your colleagues who don't yet know him, God has made me, who once was dead in sin, alive in Christ. That's the gospel. And he invites you to receive the same good news. And I love you so much that I want you to share eternity with me, eternity with me. And the only means by which that happens is through faith in his perfect life, death, and resurrection. I want you to become a new creation as I am in him and by him alone. We're alive in Christ. And we are new creations. And so the only thing that we have left to do right now is to praise him, to celebrate him in I honestly, I as I was praying for you all this week, I want there to be more and more salvations coming to joy in Christ, in and through this church. Whether it's you and you've never responded to Christ, you've been in the church, you've thought good works was enough for salvation, but yet until today you you realize I need to believe in Christ personally for the forgiveness of my sin. If that's you, let's talk. Let's talk and have that eternally important conversation. And if this is, and if you have come to belief in Christ, another thing that the Lord put on my mind this week, in light of his commands to go and teach all that he's commanded us to observe and make disciples, if you've yet to come to faith in Christ, but you haven't yet been baptized, as the outward symbol and profession of the inward change that he has brought to bring about life out of death, if you haven't been baptized as a believer, let's talk. I I want our church to be a church that's obedient to God because he is great and glorious. And we have no business in doing anything but what is obedient to him in joy. And he's commanded that believers be baptized. So if you've yet to be baptized and you are a believer in Christ, please write on your Connect card or the part of the bulletin that you're interested in talking to. That doesn't sign you up like we're baptizing next week, but it does. I, I long and pray that we have a baptism service soon where we collectively celebrate evidences of God's saving grace. Let's praise him while I stop talking. And we're going to sing his praises, or I'm going to invite you to speak with him in prayer and, and talk to him about your great need for him and his great delivery in Christ Jesus alone. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much. We thank you that we were once dead, disobedient, and doomed, and now in Christ we are alive. 
Lord, we acknowledge we bring nothing to the table except great need, and you've provided everything that we need, and then some in Christ Jesus. Thank you for forgiving us of our sin, past, present, future. Thank you for giving us the showers that wash away the sooty-stained sins of our past. They have clothed us in new righteousness, the garments that fit us for the eternal banquet of Revelation 19, dining with you forever, the righteousness that we couldn't earn or buy. You clothe for us by faith in Christ. We thank you for doing what we can't. And so now we turn to you in praise. We ask that by the power of your spirit, you'd bring about new life in this congregation for those who have yet to trust in you, that we'd be obedient unto baptism, we'd be obedient unto the call to make disciples, all because of our great joy in you. We've seen our depravity, and now we see the heights of your wondrous grace, which has overcome and forgiven our sin to bring us to life in Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.